Today's episode of Between the Covers is brought to you by All Lit Up, Canada's independent online bookstore and literary space for readers of emerging, quirky, and acclaimed indie books. All Lit Up is your Canadian connection for award-winning fiction and poetry, author interviews, book roundups, recommendations, and more. The only online retailer dedicated to Canadian literature, All Lit Up features books from 60 literary publishers. And now U.S. readers can shop All Lit Up close to home and save on shipping when they purchase books from its new bookshop.org affiliate shop. Browse selected titles at bookshop.org slash shop slash All Lit Up. All It Up makes it easy to discover, buy, and collect exciting contemporary Canadian literature all in one place. Check out All It Up at www.allitup.ca. That's A-L-L-L-I-T-U-P dot C-A. Today's episode is also brought to you by Hannah Stowe's powerful and deeply personal narrative, Move Like Water, in which the stories of six keystone marine creatures, alongside Stowe's own stunning illustrations, invite readers to fall in love with the ocean and those who call it home. For fans of Rachel Carson and Annie Dillard, Move Like Water is an inspiring, heartfelt hymn to the sea, a testament to finding and following a dream. Jay Griffiths calls the book exquisite in its intelligence and boundless in the fetch of its wave. Charles Foster adds that Stowe doesn't just watch and describe the sea, she's part of it. It surges inside her and crashes out onto the page. Move Like Water is out now from Tin House. The books of today's guest, Naomi Klein, usually fall outside the purview of the show as a literature show, even though I'm a fan of her writing and she has coined and introduced language into the political discourse and ways of framing that have been very useful for me all this time. Her new book is, however, different. It is still like her other books, books that she has described as ammo for activists, but it is also more inward-looking, more personal, more vulnerable, more searching, And she even went back to writing school to bring this more memoiristic and perhaps even novelistic element into her work. And if the accolades are any indication of this turn toward the literary, notable writers from China Mieville to Kim Stanley Robinson are some of the many people praising Doppelganger, among others who you might more expect from Bill McKibben to Angela Davis. But Doppelganger is also a book that in many ways centers literature as a topic as well. Looking at doubling and doppelgangers throughout literary history, as well as psychoanalytic thought and in the visual arts, as a means to make sense of the doubling we are seeing in the world. Not only the doppelganger Naomi herself is often mistaken for, but all the friends we've lost since the pandemic to what Naomi calls the mirror world, who have succumbed to alternate mirror world narratives around vaccines or masks or other ways to protect each other from harm. Both of these elements of her new book, a focus 
on literature and, and a move toward a more introspective and personal style may be interested in reaching out to Naomi. But there's also a third reason that really sealed the deal for me. I knew Naomi Klein knew of the show because she had tweeted about my most recent conversation with Viet Thanh Nguyen in 2021, a conversation that looked at many complex things from the revolutionary origins of the term Asian American to the ways it is now used in representational politics as a kind of erasure of certain segments of the community. From Hazel Carby's critique of Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, to questions of Asian-Black relations within the United States and Asian-Arab relations in France. I remember after this episode, a past guest from many years ago, Yun Sung Kim, the author of The Gospel of Regicide, she said to me, I think the show has gotten more radical. Whether that's true or not, I do think it has developed and come into its own politics. And the politics is one that has been shaped by the conversations themselves, the encounters with the thoughts of people who've been on the show. When Claudia Rankin came on the show 10 years ago, I don't think I could have had the conversation I had with Viet Thanh Nguyen two years ago with her. But it was through talking with Claudia and Natalie Diaz and Solma Sharif and Christina Sharp and Dion Brand and C.A. Conrad and Laylee Long Soldier and Viet Thanh Nguyen the first time that step by step shaped a certain sensibility that was both aesthetic and political for Between the Covers. One thing Naomi's new book has that's similar to her other books is that it introduces new conceptual terms, new language that is incredibly useful to understand our current moment. But unlike her past groundbreaking terms like disaster capitalism or the shock doctrine, the terms in this book, from the idea of the second body to sacrifice zones and shadow lands, all of these new ideas, as helpful as they are for movements, also have deep relevance for writers and writing in any genre. What are we turning away from seeing? What are we not including in our frame of concern or attention? And what consequences for our literature, for our sense of self or our culture or of our people is there for what we center and what we exclude for the shadowlands we create by continuing to not see certain things and to always see others. So even when Naomi and I are talking in purely political terms, say about the pandemic or about climate change, there are direct analogs in writing for the questions we tackle. And as you'll see, we keep coming back to books as we do. As Naomi says in this conversation, this is also her most Jewish book for many reasons. It is a book that looks at doppelgangers and doubling, partially within a Jewish context around anti-Semitism, Holocaust memory, Palestine, Zionism, Marxism, the labor bund, and more. The conversation that we have today touches on many of these things throughout, but we decided that we want to do a part two sometime later this fall, once her tour is over and she's back home. A second 
doppelganger episode that will be the Jewish edition, a more in-depth look at some of these questions around doubling and identity. As a case study, really, I would say, for many of the ways we will explore how a community remembers itself or how a community places itself in relation to other communities really has relevance for any people. One of the reasons the main conversation nevertheless still leans Jewish is because one of the central books that Naomi engages with today within Doppelganger is Philip Roth's Doppelganger book, Operation Shylock, a book set in Israel and Palestine that engages deeply with Zionism and what Philip Roth's double calls diasporism. For the bonus audio, Naomi decided to read a truly amazing letter written by the fake Philip Roth to the real Philip Roth. This joins bonus audio from so many other dynamic writers, from Christina Sharp to Dion Brand to Natalie Diaz to Viet Thanh Nguyen. And the bonus audio is only one reason to join the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every listener supporter gets the resources with each episode that include the many things referenced during it and the resources I used to prepare for it, and also further things to explore, which this time includes some examples of writers working to confront the denied or forgotten shadowlands within their own writing. And then there's plenty more to choose from, from the Tin House Early Readership subscription, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before the general public, to rare collectibles from past guests. You can find out about all of this and more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with Naomi Klein. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is author and journalist Naomi Klein. Her first book, No Logo, was one of the first books to put the emerging grassroots resistance to corporate manipulation into clear perspective and was named by Time Magazine as one of the top 100 nonfiction books of the last 100 years, by the Literary Review of Canada as one of the 100 most important Canadian books ever published, and by HarperCollins UK for their 200th anniversary, named as one of their top 200 books ever. 
with the shock doctrine, the rise of disaster capitalism. Klein looked at the ways the powerful use catastrophes and the disorientation they cause to bypass democracy and consent and to further consolidate power and wealth at the expense of the victims of the catastrophe itself. This changes everything, capitalism versus the climate, looked at the game changer that is the climate apocalypse we are all now suffering under. And these are only three of her many books, books that have been published in over 35 languages and met with both popular enthusiasm and critical acclaim. Klein is also an award-winning journalist, having written for The Intercept as senior contributing writer, The Nation, The Globe and Mail, as a columnist with The Guardian, and as a contributing editor at Harper's and Rolling Stone. Her journalism has brought her everywhere from China to Standing Rock, Puerto Rico to Iraq, and several of her books have been made into feature documentaries directed by Avi Lewis. In the profile of Klein in The New Yorker, she was described as, quote, the most visible and influential figure on the American left, what Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky were 30 years ago. You are as likely to see Naomi Klein in conversation with Greta Thunberg as invited to the Vatican to help launch Pope Francis's historic encyclical on ecology, giving the Edward Said Memorial Lecture or seen her on the stage at rallies for Bernie Sanders during his last presidential campaign. Klein was one of the key organizers of the Leap Manifesto that created a blueprint for a rapid, justice-based transition off fossil fuels in Canada, one that attended to the intersections of climate, race, and class, and which was a notable influence on the Green New Deal. And she's the recipient of innumerable awards and honorary degrees, including being named to the Frederick Douglass 200, a project to honor the impact of 200 living individuals who best embody the works and spirit of Douglass, the IF Stone Award for Outstanding Independent Media and Journalism, and the Sydney Peace Prize, Australia's International Award for Peace. In 2018, she was named the inaugural Gloria Steinem Endowed Chair in Media, Culture, and Feminist Studies at Rutgers University, and as an honorary professor of media and climate there. And she currently serves as professor of climate justice at the University of British Columbia and is the founding co-director of the UBC Center for Climate Justice. Given all that Klein has done, it may come as a surprise that Klein's latest book, Doppelganger, is in many ways a venture into a new area for Klein, not only a new topic, but a new way of writing. Past Between the Covers guest, China Mieville says of Doppelganger, this book is as foreboding as a guide through the maze of mirrors of the modern right should be. But it's not only that. Naomi Klein has made Doppelganger gripping and scintillating too. The result is a reckoning with the present moment that's as insightful as all of Klein's indispensable work and as suspenseful as a novel. Angela Davis adds, with their always incisive analysis of the systems and structures linked to global capitalism, Klein now fiercely and brilliantly urges that our justice movements be prepared to follow the quest for new meaning into dimensions where we might least expect to find it in injury and vulnerability. Judith Butler adds, 
Naomi Klein's thoughtful and honest inquiry into the troubling duplication of her name and the distorted appropriation of her views becomes the occasion for an incisive account of how the right has appropriated left discourses, producing a nightmarish doubling that has plunged some of us into silence. Klein moves her reader toward the truer grounds of solidarity in these times, showing us how to resist the lures of fascism with militant humility and connection, letting ourselves be upended by what we thought we could not bear to see so that we can face and build an affirmative future. And finally, another past guest of Between the Covers, Kim Stanley Robinson, says, Naomi Klein's books have been building one on the next to create a powerful cognitive mapping of our time. This new book takes a personal turn, then opens out into an analysis of our shared global dilemma that is as incisive and fascinating as anything she has ever written, which is saying a lot. As always, my first thought on finishing one of her books is thank you. Welcome to Between the Covers, Naomi Klein. Thank you so much, David. It is a real joy to be with you. Thank you for that beautiful introduction. So I've long been a fan of your books and the ways they frame things conceptually, how you've created new language that has helped empower movements on the ground. And preparing for today's conversation, I gave some thought to the ways your political point of view both influences and aligns with choices that I make on the show. And it's something that I want to explore a little bit later on today. But before we go into the political, I wanted to start with the literary, because your books before now largely fall outside the purview of a literature-focused podcast. But the new book is a new direction. Not only does Doppelganger meditate a lot on literature and other forms of art as its subject, as part of its exploration of what you call the mirror world, but you've also said that the book is a real departure for you insofar that it is a new way of writing that you haven't done, more personal, more self-questioning. So in a sense, Doppelganger exists in two ways, just like your other books in that it puts forth a political analysis, and yet at the same time it also exists as memoir or a personal essay. And in the acknowledgments to the book, you mentioned that at a moment of acute pandemic vertigo, as well as being stuck with your own writing, you decided to use the travel restrictions to go to the writing school you never attended. And you thank Harriet Clark, who was your teacher, and that this project took root as part of your schooling with her. So I'd love to hear in your own words how this book feels like a departure the impetus behind going to writing school when you are already a supremely successful author, and maybe both something about what the schooling was like and something about the anxieties or fears or excitements of writing in this new way, especially given that you mentioned that some people were explicitly cautioning you against writing like this. Thanks for that. Yeah, no, it, the the first line of the book is in my defense, it was never my intent to write this book. Um, no one asked me to, and many people cautioned against it. And that is all true. That is all true. Um, yes, I, I'm really thrilled to be able to talk about, about my unexpected back to school COVID trip um, and why I did it. I did write a fair bit in the early days of COVID. I was pretty prolific 
around something I often do when there are big ruptures in the in the collective story. I often get asked to talk about the shock doctrine and and ways to avoid it because there was a lot of concern about the ways the pandemic would be used by tech companies to, you know, by fossil fuel coming. I mean, there were there were all kinds of sort of deregulatory grabs, things, things that I've tracked before. So I talked a lot in those first months, even though I've even though it was a very different kind of shock for me in the sense that I was in it, unlike having that reportorial distance that I, that I've had when you know you listed some of the places that I've gone as a journalist, like Iraq after the U.S. UK invasion, or New Orleans and the Gulf Coast in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. You know, those were not my shocks. Those were the, that I had that I I was there with my notebook and I was there as an observer, a reporter, and I was watching the way other people's trauma was being capitalized upon, exploited in order to push policies that would have been, you know, forcefully opposed under other circumstances, like privatizing New Orleans school system and so on. So COVID was different in that I don't think anybody was outside of it. We weren't all on the same kinds of front lines by any means. It was an incredibly unequally distributed um, set of risks, but I, I mean, I, I my head was foggy. I, I, you know, I, I was, I was more confused than I've ever been. But yeah, I did kind of try to push through it, and really, I guess until finally Trump was out of the White House, and then I sort of crashed. <laughs> um, and the crash and the speechlessness that you know you referenced, I, I think it was not so much. And so here we're talking about of spring 2021, I guess, winter, winter, spring 2021. It was not so much the shock of COVID that left me speechless and, and, and not really able to write or really wanting to write or listless or depressed. I mean, these things are all very entangled for me. It was, I think, crashing from a few real political highs as you said, you know, I had been part of the Bernie Sanders campaign, and that's very much what I had been doing when the world shut down. Uh, you know, I had, you know, and and those had been, frankly, some of the best moments of my life. You know, I, it sounds corny, but being in Las Vegas uh, when Bernie swept the strip, right? You've never seen so many happy leftists in your life. I mean, we were just hugging strangers. It was just so exciting because it was Vegas, you know, it was, it was Trumpy gold ground zero of a certain kind of absurdist capitalism. And the people who make that city run, who clean the hotel rooms, who shine the slot machines, like literally rose up and just said no. <laughs> and, you know, voted for a democratic socialist, voted for universal health care, voted for, um, you know, a, a higher, a, li a living wage, despite the fact that in many cases, their own union had told them, you know, to vote for Biden, I believe it was. That was the moment when a bunch of us really let ourselves imagine that we might do this thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we didn't. <laughs> and I, 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 as we all know, at the end of that story, and I, I so vividly remember being, I was still living in the States at this time. I was, I was teaching at Rutgers and I, I was living in New Jersey. And there was just something about the convergence of very early lockdown and watching that moment when the whole Democratic Party just 
closed ranks around Biden. You mean you remember that 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 mm-hmm. that big rally where it was just like, and who's up next? And who's up next? It was like it's Buttigieg, you know. It's it was just like it's Cory Booker. Everybody's just lining up, and and I think it was something about that happening when we couldn't be with one another, when we couldn't process it, when we were all just sort of freaking out about COVID at the same time. But then, of course, then comes the racial justice uprising that summer or that spring. And that's another opening. That's another possibility. And then there's all this organizing about, well, maybe, maybe the way we emerge from this shock really learns its lessons. Arundhati Roy writes, the pandemic is a portal and we're all passing it around and imagining, well, maybe, maybe we're going somewhere else and maybe we will be changed by it in a good way. Um, And I I think the speechlessness for me was the realization that that wasn't going to happen. And I was just out of arguments. Like I was just, I I had no more cheerleading left, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, I had spent, I I had done it. I had done it for Bernie. I had done it for the, you know, the idea of a people's, people's uh, reconstruction from, from, from COVID. And I just didn't want to write anymore. Didn't know, didn't feel like I could write the kind of books that I have written, which are more linear, which are more, okay, I'm going to lay out what the thesis is, and then I'm going to prove it and reprove it. And we're going to go in a pretty straight line up this mountain together. And then we're going to say that we did it. (laughs) (laughs) And I I mean, you know, it's funny, you mentioned Harriet Clark, and she says, don't throw your other books under the bus. We can talk about how this is new without throwing your other (laughs) books under the bus. So I don't want to throw my, I don't want to throw, throw the books under the bus, but I, but I, I guess I got to a point where I felt like if I can't be excited about the content I had to offer, that maybe I could get excited about the form. Mm. And I was feeling a certain lightness already about my public persona. You know, you 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 quoted from that New Yorker article about you know, and I find it a really silly quote. You know about most influential person on the American level or whatever, or whatever it was. I'm not, I'm not anymore. You know, like there was a moment, there was a moment after, after the shock doctrine where my profile was really high and the left was also much smaller, but there are so many other prominent, powerful, amazing people who are carrying movements forward, are in Congress, you know, are, are much more the face of the, of the, of the left than I am. And I realized that there was something really freeing about that. Like I didn't, you know, I start the book with this quote from Judith Butler. I I found a way to live beside my name. And I just thought, I don't have to care that much anymore. Like I can actually have more fun as a writer and remember why I wanted to become a writer in the first place. My first book, um, No Logo, was, it. you know, it it, it is not as unconventional for me, formal, formally as this book. But it's more. It is. It is more fun than the other books. It's more playful. It's more confessional. It takes. It. 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 It plays with voice. You know. It. It called itself a mall rat memoir. It played with the contradictions of wanting all the shiny things at the same time as wanting, you know, to to critique them. And 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 so I think this book is more. A, a quarter of a century later, uh, coming a little bit back to that voice changed, obviously. I'm in my fifties, not my twenties, but, but it, there was a freedom to it. There was something about feeling like I'm not carrying around that heavy name anymore. Um, nobody really cares. And I can have fun with that and do something a little, 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 little more unconventional. And so I, 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 I thought actually about enrolling in an online writing class. Um, I looked into, I had heard that Iowa was, had moved online and I thought, well, maybe I can do that. 
But then I was talking to my friend V, uh, formerly Eve Ensler, and I was telling her, I was asking her for her ideas. She's a wonderful playwright, as, as people know, uh, for, for writing schools. And she said, you know, there's somebody who I think might maybe take you on as a, you know, as a student and that might work better. I think that, she, that she was concerned and I was as well, that I might not feel free in a group space. And so she has been friends with uh, Harriet Clark for a long time because she knows her mother, Judy Clark, who's one of the, a member of the Weather Underground. Um, mm. And Harriet had taught writing at Iowa, taught writing at, at Stanford and kindly took me on as a student. And and the fact that Harriet's a radical was also really important to me because I often struggle where, um, you know, whenever I'm sort of testing out a new editor, I'm like, are you going to try to turn me into a liberal? Like, is that your idea of editing? Because I have had that experience many times, you know, and 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 Harriet is the kind of teacher who who really wants you to be as radical as you can be, but to, to, but to but to be to do it as creatively and interestingly as possible. And we just clicked immediately. So I went to Harriet's school. <laughs> I love it. Well, in the book, you explore doppelgangers throughout the history of literature and art, whether Dostoevsky or Saramago or Ursula Le Guin or Rossetti. And why you do will be a big part of what we talk about today. But before we talk about doppelgangers and more specifically your real life doppelganger, I, I wanted to mention how often the question of doubles comes up for writers on the show. And I suspect this would be true for many artists too, since we're talking about the act of representation in some way. It's super common that a conversation at some point will touch on the notion of doubles, of the gap between who someone is in the world and who they are on the page, between lived life and the imagination, between words and the feelings or thoughts that are represented imperfectly by words, and many other things. For instance, what many consider the first modern novel, Don Quixote, you could look at as being very postmodern and a postmodern look at doubling through representation because Quixote is motivated to go on quests in the hope of being written about like the heroes in the romance books that he reads. So he's motivated to become a double, to have a, a reputation as such by reading the stories of these imagined doubles themselves. And then in the second half of the book, when he's successfully created a reputation, he is now known independent of his own day-to-day -day life. And he's now confronted with his reputation everywhere he goes. In your book, we see these questions of doubling in many places. For instance, with Bell Hooks, whose real name was Gloria Jean Watkins, but who wrote under the name of her great-grandmother. And when she says that for her, it is important to say not, I am a feminist, but I advocate feminism. It's because, as you explain, she wants to avoid either or speaking. But I suspect avoiding I am a feminist is also an acknowledgement of the way a word can reductively or regressively serve as a double for oneself, especially a noun versus a verb, in a flattening way. And in that spirit, you quote Judith Butler, which you've already done today, I have found a way to live to the side of my name that has proven to be very helpful. So while your book touches on these perhaps normal and healthy questions of doubling and the human desire to name and represent, it's really much more dealing with doppelgangers, which are more fraught figures. 
you explore others' thoughts on this in the book, but how would you yourself characterize the figure of the doppelganger and the way it has a different valence than the doubling I've been talking about? The through line of the book is is different forms of doubling. Yes, doppelgangers, but but not only do- doppelgangers, also, I guess, more benign forms of, of the doubled cells. But I think doppelgangers are more ominous. They are often seen as, as a bad omen, as a harbinger, as a as a some kind of a warning. In so much of the literature of the figure of the doppelganger, which of course is the it's it it literally translates from German as the double goer or the double walker, right? And it's it goes back to this idea that we each have a double walking around somewhere, and that if we were to bump into them, it would be like looking into. Um, uh, an uncanny kind of mirror, a living mirror. And also you might also die after that happened. Mm-hmm. And and there are all kinds of stories like that. Catherine the Great sees her double and then dies shortly after. There's been, there's, there, there, there are many examples of this. But in the literature, like if we're thinking about Edgar Allan Poe's William Wilson or Oscar Wilde's Dorian Gray or, um, or Dostoevsky's The Double, which has been doubled and doubled and doubled in, in films and other novels. Um, there is very often like that, that moment when the, the, the male protagonist like is stabbing their double is fighting for themselves. Uh, I think it's about the instability of identity. I think it's also about ego, like uh, in, in particular, the kind of ego that you're talking about in Don Quixote of, of, you know, will I be credited um, will I get the recognition that I deserve? And so I think writers are interested in the figure of doubles for all kinds of reasons. I mean, I think one of them is that there is a, a such a, a clear doubling or, or multiplication. I mean, doubling is not enough, but in, but let's just start with a double in the, in the act of writing and also in the act of bringing one's work into the world, right? So, you know, on the page, you're creating a double often, but even just from the writer's perspective, the the writer you is this, has to be a very solitary figure. It has to be a very internal uh, figure in order to do the work. I mean, you you have to be able to have this capacity that that, that, that most people don't have to spend a hell of a lot of time alone with yourself and, and not get a lot of external input. And then if you're lucky, the book goes out in the world and there's this completely other set of demands that that is expected of you. You have to be extremely extroverted um, and you have to be able to talk about your work for two and a half hours <laughs> on a podcast or, you know, or, or, or you know, if, if, if you're very, very lucky, you know, go into TV studios and be this kind of shiny version of oneself. And I think any writer who has navigated those two spaces is acutely aware of, of the fact that they are, that they have multiple selves to perform. Um, so I think that that then often goes back into the work where you play with, you, you play with the, the, the multiplicity of identity. And I mean, I think there's a huge variety in the kinds of doubling and doppelganging that we experience and whether they're menacing or not, whether they're scary, as I mentioned, there's, a, there's, a, there's a whole canon of white men who are worried about their reputations <laughs> And are stabbing people uh, in their double books, uh, uh, and will come to Roth later. <laughs> There's also, I think, the malevolent double is also 
the double that gets projected onto you by the outside world, right? The double that you have no control over, the ethnic double, the gender double, uh, the double that you have to perform in different spaces, code switching. Um, you know, in the, in, in the book, I talk about the, the unshakable ethnic double, you know, because I'm trying to make sense of why I get confused with my doppelganger so much. Well, we're both Jewish. And so my mother suggests, well, maybe it's just anti-Semitism. And that leads me down a whole other, other path around the various kinds of menacing doubles that get projected onto people, much more menacing than the one that I'm dealing with. Um, and, and, you know, quote Du Bois and, and Baldwin. And, um, you know, I was talking to Robin D.G. Kelly the other day about it, who was an early reader of the book. And, and he was talking about Native Son being really about that racial doubling and the, the menacing double created by white supremacy that is create that is projected onto all black men. Um, you know, so I get into a little of this. So I think different positionalities create different challenges and, and grapplings with the figure of the way we all have doubles projected onto us. Uh, so I guess that's a that's a long rambling way of saying double like doppelgangers are a lot of things that speak yeah. to the instability of the self, right? Yeah. I mean, I think inherently the reason why they recur uh, so frequently, like why they are just such a um, perennial through line in the history of literature and cinema and, and back to ancient mythology is because they speak to the, the instability at the core of identity, that we want to believe that we have control over this thing we call the self, but we also know that that self can be undone in an instant by forces beyond our control, an accident a psychotic break, a bad trip, a bad tweet, um, you know, and, and uh, in Operation Shylock, my favorite Philip Roth novel as of now um, about his doppelganger, though all of his books are about his doppelgangers. It begins, interestingly, with this story of having an adverse drug reaction to a sleeping pill where, and, and, and he says to his wife, Philip Roth, not Philip Roth, but sort of Philip Roth, Where's Philip? Right, mm -hmm. that he's he's lost himself, and it and then and then and then the doppelganger tale begins. So I I think that's a really good example of the reason why writers are attracted to to this idea that we are not in control of ourselves. I love that one of the one of the incredibly useful concepts you created, I think, was the notion of the shock doctrine and disaster capitalism, where you argue that the post-shock states of disorientation and dislocation that happen in the wake of disasters, whether that's 9-11 or Hurricane Katrina, are exploited, and that they are times when, without debate or consent, the powerful are able to enrich themselves at the expense of others and also roll back hard-earned political rights. In the opening to Doppelganger, we learn that for most of the last two decades, that you believe that because you wrote about and understood these tactics, that you yourself would be immune to the tactics. But that looking back post-COVID lockdown, you, you cringe now looking back at how easy you had it and how really the reason why you felt you were immune is because the effects of disaster capitalism weren't really affecting you personally in any tangible embodied way. But now with COVID, that has changed significantly. Suddenly confined in your home, trying to help your neuroatypical son to learn online and then moving back to Canada to be closer to your parents, something that was supposed to be temporary 
but due to the pandemic became more permanent, a situation you describe as, quote, we now live full-time up on a rock at the dead end of a street that is three hours, including a less than dependable ferry boat from the closest city. It's good here when it isn't choked by heat and wildfire smoke or lashed by storms from which we keep having to learn new names, but it is isolated. So maybe that's what finally pushed me to, or is it over the edge? The months and months without humans in bodies to feel and think with. I set this all up not only because of how COVID was an equalizer of sorts for you with regards to the shock it delivered, but also because your life, like many of ours, became more mediated through screens and our online avatar doubles. And even though your doppelganger problem long predated this moment, you were always able to say to yourself that, well, it's just confined to social media or mostly confined to social media. But with the lockdown, online life became one of the main ways to connect. You were online more, your doppelganger herself became more unmoored and more prominent and visible since COVID. You say in the book that when confronted with the appearance of one's double, a person is duty-bound to go on a journey, and you yourself more than most people have been given this signal or this warning to do this journey, I think. And I say this because your double is so significantly part of who you are in some ways, that if I go to your Wikipedia page, the first thing that I see is the line, not to be confused with Naomi Wolf. So I I never read my Wikipedia page. So I'm really sad that you told me that. Well, so start to orient us to this confusion, this longstanding confusion, becoming something more worrisome or more um, consuming, essentially, and and ultimately the way, maybe like you saying this drug effect with Roth, uh, Naomi Wolf becoming the the white rabbit down the rabbit hole, where you're going to take this pill that makes you large or the pill that makes <laughs> you small. So um, talk to us about this confusion that becomes more serious than an annoyance, one that you end up using as if not a portal, like Roy's notion of a portal, a a rabbit hole, like Lewis Carroll's rabbit hole? Well, I found it very productive, you know, and I'm grateful to her in a way. Um, Quite sincerely, I I feel like this has been such a productive metaphor for understanding so many different forms of doubling, the ways we double ourselves um, with our personal brands, with our online avatars, the way Um, Tech companies create digital golems of us that follow us around, um, which we don't control, um, and now AIs of us, you know, if we we decide that that's a good thing, or even if we don't decide uh, to create AI versions of ourselves. There's actually a company I just found out about called Doppel that will make an AI doppelganger of you, if you think that's a good idea. yeah, so it was definitely different before COVID, the, the confusion, or capital T, capital C, <laughs> the confusion, as I refer to it in the book. <laughs> um, I, I think because Wolf, um, Naomi Wolf, was 
more of an, like she dabbled in conspiracy culture. And I say conspiracy culture, not conspiracy theory, because they really weren't theories. They were, it was just kind of like conspiracy hunching, you know, like there would be uh, ISIS beheadings and she would share her thought that maybe they were crisis actors. It's not like she had evidence. It was just like thinking out loud in the social media age. I'm just going to share any thought that pops into my head. And when she would do things like this or take pictures of clouds and say like, what's going on with that cloud? You know, um, (laughs) people would, you know, it's not like I was seeking it out. People would tell me, they would say thoughts and prayers to Naomi Klein and, or like, I can't believe Naomi Klein, like what has happened to her? So I would, I would sort of reverse engineer it. Right. So I would, I would, I would go online. I would get a bunch of messages as if I had done something and then realize it was someone else. It was her. And then do a bit of searching and realize, okay, she took some pictures of clouds again. Okay. You know, she's been sharing her, her views about crisis actors again. But it was more sporadic, you know, I would say it would happen like once a month or something like that. And there were things about it that were almost funny to me because because I lucked out with my first book, David. You know, I really did. I got lucky <laughs> yeah. with, with no logo. And I went from being an unknown writer to being somebody who was felt very watched, right? So I had a lot of kind of surveillance of me happening when after no logo. Uh, came out, by which I mean, there was a paper in Canada that had a short-lived column called Klein Watch, which appeared to be, um, which appeared to just be an an attempt to catch me going into a gap. The the guys who founded Vice before it was a global empire that was, it was just a news, local newspaper in Toronto. And they sent a reporter to go through my garbage and take pictures of anything with a logo on it. And they did like a double page spread with my tampon boxes and Diet Coke cans because I'm already like a pretty repressed person, you know, we don't know each other well, but let me just share that. I'm not, I'm not like an extrovert in that way. I don't write personally, which is another reason why this is a departure for me and a freeing for me. Um, This is in part because I grew up with very extroverted kind of hippie parents. So I was like holding, you know, I I was holding things together uh, while they were like skinny dipping and things like that. And and so, you know, that's what happens when you have hippie parents and grow up in the 80s. You've got it it can bring out the controlling side in you. So I was already controlling. And then I had this like real world confirmation. People really are watching you and trying to catch you out, you know. So. It all, I think, made me quite guarded. And so, for instance, one of the books that Wolf wrote before before COVID, a few years before COVID, was a book called Vagina, a biography. Um, I think that was the subtitle. And it was sort of a history of the vagina, but it was also like her own stories of having trouble having orgasms. And I'm not, I'm, I, I am not laughing at the book, although a lot of people did. I'm laughing at the absurdity that if you knew me, you would know that if there was a lab somewhere to create a doppelganger that seemed to be like exactly designed to play on my particular bundle of neuroses, it would be somebody who wrote a book about their vagina and also was caught making factual errors on the BBC, which also happened to her with, with, with the next book. So it, I mean, it was funny, absurd, weird before COVID, but then when COVID happened, it got even weirder. And kind of Rothian, <laughs> because um, she had a theory around COVID, which was sort of like a doppelganger of the shock doctrine. And the theory was that this whole sort of thing was being maybe, maybe had been cooked up deliberately 
because there was some plan of the World Economic Forum and the Chinese Communist Party and Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci to uh, bring CCP, Chinese Communist Party, uh, social credit system to the West, to depopulate the West. I mean, the, the theories are constantly changing. But the point was, is it was about shock exploitation, right? And that is what I'm most kind of identified with. And so when she started really leaning into this during COVID and, and was suddenly on Fox News and was suddenly on Steve Bannon's podcast, um, it was, you know, as I write a little bit like watching like my own ideas get fed into one of those Vitamix blenders and then having the thought puree um, handed to Tucker Carlson, who nodded vehemently and said, yes, absolutely. And and I think it was around then where I thought, I just have to write about this. What else can I do? It is just so, it's funny. But it, the idea was never for it to be about her. It was always about, you know, my friend Keo McClear, who's a wonderful memoirist and children's book author. You know, when I told her the concept at the beginning, she said, well, it's perfect because it's a narrow aperture and it'll allow you to look at all these different things, but lightly, you don't have to stay with them. And because she knows me and she knows I'm a completist, you know, and I feel like if I'm taking on a topic, I have to just get it from every single angle and have 70 pages of footnotes. It was like, no, I don't have to. I can, I have this narrow aperture. I can write a little bit revisiting the issue of personal branding, which I've been wanting to do a little bit about AI um, and a little bit about the child as double. And then, you know, into the more consequential work of the book, which has to do with the ways in which settler colonial nations are doubles of other nations and um, the fascist doublings that are, you know, so much a theme in so many doppelganger works of art. So that just felt like very productive, but also kind of fitting with where my head was at in that I didn't want, I wanted to write more creatively and I didn't want to write exhaustively. I wanted to be able to tread a little more lightly through these themes. In your book, you talk about how most of us have lost friends to the other side of the mirror since COVID. Friends we thought we knew that seemingly suddenly have revealed a very different worldview with regards to vaccines and masking or individual responsibility to the collective. Um, I think of my wife, Lucy, who's French, but who has lived outside of France for 25 years, and her oldest friend, her last non-familial connection to her home country, a friend in France, who was adamantly against getting her or her family vaccinated and found the arguments that vaccine passports were the first signs of the beginnings of tyranny and fascism to be compelling. And while Lucy, who is the farthest thing from polemical and would have been fine never raising these issues, for the sake of harmony and peace between her and her friend. On the other hand, her friend was outraged that Lucy got vaccinated, that she masked, and that she was sheltering at home. And one thing Doppelganger helped us with was to understand better two things that her friend said that made no sense to us, that Lucy was selfish for getting vaccinated, and that when Lucy asked, but what about those who are old or who are immune compromised? What about vaccinating for them, for their sake? Her friend suggested maybe it was natural or maybe it was okay that they died, that this was part of a, of a, a natural process. These are two things you go into 
in the book in a really illuminating way. But as a first step toward this, I wanted to sort of set up a literary framework mm-hmm. and a point of reference, the one that you've already referenced to that recurs throughout the book so that we can refer to it as we go. You say that you were originally planning to draw more heavily on Freud's uncanny or Jung's synchronicity or on Poe or on Dickens, and they're all there, but there's only one author in this entire upside down chapter of your life who seemed to genuinely understand the specific texture of your experience, the combination of absurdity and gravity. And that was Philip Roth and his book, Operation Shylock in specific, which you call hands down the most gripping doppelganger book you had found in your study of the genre. You go to pains to say that you have found Roth maddening when it comes to his failure to create dimensional women who aren't more than objects of desire. And that 20 years ago, you threw one of his books across the room, swore you would never read him again. And, and we should say that Operation Shylock does indeed have a cardboard cutout cartoonish femme fatale, Jinx Pazeski. But you said that now, decades later, you weren't outraged as much as it sort of seemed pitiful, a sad reflection on him as a person, but you were able to put that aside and see what was otherwise wonderful and remarkable in this regard. So before I read Doppelganger, and I had no idea that Roth figured in your book, but I knew you were at some point going to talk about Israel and Palestine in the book, I had written down, we have to talk about Operation Shylock. This is because Philip Roth wakes up one day to read in the paper that someone in Israel who claims to be Philip Roth is espousing a movement called reverse Zionism. And ultimately, he goes to confront him. But I never suspected it would be such a presence in the book, a delightful presence beyond the question of Jewish identity and beyond Israel and Palestine, something that got more generally at the core of the doppelganger experience. So I was hoping... You could talk to us about the texture of this book for you, why it so captured your own experience with Naomi Wolf. Why, why is it Operation Shylock that um, helps you to find the language to explore your own doppelganger? There is a lot there, and I, just, I, will, I will get to that, but I just first wanted to... Well, maybe maybe we should maybe I should respond first about Roth, but I want to I want to come back to Lucy's friend and this double move that she does, where she first accuses you of fascism, you know, first accuses the the the, the COVID health measures of being fascistic, um, of of being the first stage of bringing fascism to the West, and then exposes fascistic thought herself, right? Mm-hmm. Says, well, maybe they should die. I mean, that is that is eugenicist thought. Um, and that is rampant in this world. And there are all kinds of ways where there's a simultaneous appropriation and sort of trivialization of language, of important language, like the word fascism, and actually an embodying of the fascistic values and beliefs um, directed at vulnerable people. So like, for instance, there were many cases of people who were anti-mask 
saying, I can't breathe, you appropriating that Black Lives Matter slogan, I can't breathe, but projecting it onto the masks. But then also being the same people who are banning books, who, um, you know, espousing great replacement theory. Um, I mean, not everybody, but there's definitely there, there's definitely a Venn diagram of overlap. Similarly, appropriating my body, my choice as a slogan around why not to get vaccinated and then cheering on the Supreme Court for destroying reproductive rights and freedoms in the United States and many states. Hold on to more of that thought because we're going to talk more about all of that in a bit. Um, but I, I do love the notion that you bring up that if you have a double, it's a signal that you're not looking at something about yourself. Like another one that you bring up too that I liked was um, replacement theory of mm -hmm. yeah. and how that's really like a doubling of manifest destiny. So like they're not looking at the actual replacement that had the actual genocide that occurred, the actual motives of, of all of that. And instead they're obsessed with some sort of future replacement that that's going to happen. But I do believe that all of it is a way of not looking. All of it is, is a kind of toxic nostalgia. Um, and it of course, isn't a coincidence that these slogans, I can't breathe about masks happen just a few months after the largest protests in U.S. history, and they are protests for Black lives against police murder um, and for defunding the police. So, uh, you know, I think it is it is it is a desire to be a victim, and it is, it is a desire desire to not look at one's own complicity in these systems. And they're not the only ones who don't want to look at the, at complicity. It's hard. It's very very hard to be alive to 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 all of these systems. So. And I also want to say, I'm not. I wasn't a fan of the vaccine apps either. I don't think that it was a great idea to introduce technology like that as a means of getting into public spaces. I think that um, I think it was problematic. I don't think it was fascism. But I also think we can become so reactive that we don't ask really important questions about some of the problems with with the COVID health measures and how we could have had better ones. That's also another issue we're supposed to be talking about, Roth. Um, so why Operation Shylock of all the books? I think just because there is a line where he is wailing about the, the difficulty of having what he calls his preposterous proxy running around Jerusalem, trying to engineer this reverse exodus in the name of diasporaism which was the name of the movement. And what's one of the things that's strange about it, that is that it's that itself is a kind of doubling of the Bundist uh, vision of hereness. And that is something that Roth was quite aligned with. So, so it was a kind, it was an absurdization of, of himself, of his ideas. And what I was talking about before about, you know, watching one's own ideas be put into that, you know, blender and serve to Tucker Carlson that's that 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 sense of high absurdity isn't that present in many of the doppelganger uh, uh, novels, which tend to be a little bit more serious. And the there's a line in Operation Shylock where real quote quote unquote real Roth says of fake Roth, it's too ridiculous to take seriously and too serious to be ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And that is both my personal mantra and I would argue kind of like a pretty good <laughs> cut line for our age <laughs> yes. where, where we're all just sort of frozen in the laugh cry emoji where we just don't quite know 
whether to laugh or cry, where there is real danger represented by a figure like Donald Trump, but he is also a cartoon character. And that it is often how fascism works, where you don't quite know whether to take it seriously or not. And so the book ends up becoming a book about fascist doubles. And the backdrop of Operation Shylock as, as it moves forward, as Roth is chasing fake Roth around Jerusalem and then the West Bank and impersonating him, is that there is a real world event that was happening around this time where a auto worker, a retired auto worker, I believe in Cleveland, named John Demjanyuk, was accused of being Ivan the Terrible in the Treblinka concentration camp and having been this deeply, deeply sadistic guard who really delighted in in, in sending thousands of, of, of Jews to their death um, in the gas chambers. And it was a huge spectacle, this trial. And so as threading through the novel, Roth is a is a spectator in, in, in the courtroom. He's having debates with himself and his mind about this. And the reason why the book is called Operation Shylock is because a through line is this idea that Shylock is the doppelganger of all Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, that you can, and that this is indeed the entire argument for Zionist settler colonialism is that you will never, Jews will never be able to shake their their Shylock doppelganger, that the Gentile world will always believe that they are the the money-grubbing, mutilating Shylock. And there's no no changing it. There's no navigating it. And the only possible response is this fortress settler-colonial state that engages in a doppelganger of the very kinds of ghettoization, militarization, ethnic cleansing, and massacre that Jews fled from when, when when many of them came to Palestine. And here I'm not making an analogy with the Holocaust, but um, of the pogroms of the of the treatment of Jews since the Inquisition. And so, I guess that is why the the book felt so generative um, and so useful in the moment that we're in and the moment that I was in of sort of having my own preposterous proxy. Um, feeling like it is both absurd, both ridiculous and serious because the misinformation that is being spread has real medical consequences. You know, there was a study that was done about, and you mentioned this friend of Lucy that, that, that she was mad at people who got vaccinated. And this is one of the ways that framings and ideas get sort of appropriated and flipped, right? The argument for getting vaccinated is that we are part of a network of enmeshed bodies um, and that even if you personally are not vulnerable because you we, we because we're we are in this network we all we all have to protect each other and if we get sick even if we may be able to survive that sickness personally we will shed sickness on other people and they might not be able to so this whole framework work for why one would get vaccinated for infectious diseases gets flipped and absurdized in what I call the mirror world. And the argument becomes, no, it's vaccinated people who are shedding vaccine particles. And those particles are making women bleed between periods and potentially become infertile. This piece of medical misinformation spread 
virally, particularly in the worlds of women's wellness. And a lot of women believed it and women who were particularly concerned about being able to continue to conceive decided not to get vaccinated because of it. Pregnant women decided not to get vaccinated because of it, which is particularly dangerous because pregnant women are more vulnerable to COVID because when you're pregnant, your immune system is suppressed so that you don't reject the fetus. And because of that, you're also, your suppressed immune system is also more vulnerable to, to other kinds of infections. It's a big deal to tell pregnant women that it that it's dangerous. And anyway, this NPR study found that my doppelganger, Naomi Wolf, was kind of ground zero for this piece of medical misinformation that if you tra- if you traced all the digital digital threads, many of them led back to some tweets that re- that went viral where she amplified these claims that vaccinated people were shedding on unvaccinated uh, on people and it was causing bleeding between periods and so on. Um, so that is serious and ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> and and I think that that's why I found Roth such a comforting companion, despite my extremely conflicted feelings about him. And despite the fact that I did throw a copy of Counter Life, that was the book, um, which was the book, I believe, right before Operation Shylock, uh, across the room of my dorm room, across my dorm room in second year university and vowed never again to read another book by Philip Roth because the human experience is vast. And I felt like I really already knew everything I needed to know about the particular bundle of neuroses and mommy issues of <laughs> Jewish men in the tri-state area. Like, yeah. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm just saying, I know, no, I get the sure. point. <laughs> and I wanted to know about some other uh, neuroses. <laughs> I, I love that you connect him to diasporism and to the labor bones notion of hereness, because that was what was really profound for me, that he could stake a claim that his world in Newark is as central to a Jewish identity as any Jewish world. But one thing I wanted to add about Roth, since the audience of the show is largely writers and art makers and aspiring ones, is that whereas you say that he always favored thinly disguised doubles of himself, I actually think it's more complicated and interesting than that. When he wrote Portnoy's Complaint, an entire novel as a monologue to one's psychoanalyst, when that book blew up, it was his no logo. Like it was the book that really like brought him into the public consciousness, perhaps because of its intimate confessional therapeutic style, people just automatically assumed this was Roth's story, that he had been a maniacal masturbator, that these were his constantly constipated and overbearing parents. But he said at the time it couldn't have been farther from the truth that his family was actually nothing like this family at all, that his parents couldn't have been more different than the ones he conjured for Portnoy. But what's interesting is instead of making that more clear in his future work, he chooses to toy with his reader's desire to conflate him with his fiction and his fictional double by always backfilling the most superficial facts of his real life into the life of his characters. So much so that 40 years later, when his so-called double gets prostate cancer surgery and is impotent, and has urinary incontinence, and has to strategize when, if ever, to leave his rural home in Connecticut to go to New York City, a home that is the same rural Connecticut setting of the real Philip Roth, where he lived, people still were assuming this was Roth's situation, and he had to say in interviews, no, 
I fortunately didn't have prostate cancer and thus I haven't had the side effects of cancer treatment either. So it's kind of unclear how much his career was thinly disguised or how much he was provocatively playing with his readership around the widespread and sort of natural desire to collapse the gap between authors and their characters, to collapse the double. Well, Operation Shylock is particularly complicated when it comes to, I mean, he almost had like a disdain for his readers in that sense. Like he really <laughs> wanted to mess around because it with this book, he, in, in a couple of key interviews, he insisted that it was nonfiction. Yeah. I remember like that. again and again and he again. <laughs> and the interviewer was like, it's fiction. Your publisher told me. And he was like, no, it's not. It's all true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't spoil the ending because there's this, yeah. the supposedly non-fictional part of the ending. But, but thinking about this question between the real and the imagined and how they relate and how they double, we have a question for you from China Mieville, whose fabulous book of doubling the city in the city is, is one of the books that you talk about in Doppelganger. Congratulations and thank you for such a fascinating work. I feel like focusing too closely on the individual figures within it, um, including the key figure other than you, is kind of to miss the point of an argument that's more about structures of politics and reactionary affect than individuals. But for all that, my curiosity uh, has got the better of me. And given that publishing can be a small world, I wonder if you've heard anything, maybe through mutual acquaintances, about how your doppelganger feels about your book. Well, it's lovely to hear from China. And he he uh, he did write that quote that you read earlier, but he did more than that. He actually read an early draft of the book and gave me some fantastic feedback that really had a big impact, pushed me in really important ways to make it a true doppelganger uh, book, which means that it's never about them. It's always about us. So in those moments where I let myself just kind of get a too easy laugh, he's like, are you sure you deserve this? There was one point in particular where I, I talk about how, uh, how Wolf had given an interview to a podcast that I had never heard of before. She went on it and she she shared her belief that when she goes into, she, she said, when she goes into New York City, which now has very high vaccination rates, it's as if the people in New York City are no longer fully human and they have become affectless. And when you're in a room with them, you don't kind of get any human feeling off of them. And the other thing is that they don't smell, they don't have a smell. Mm -hmm. And so it was like a straight up kind of Stepford or invasion of the body snatchers. She actually used a couple of those references, which is another weird thing. She's always talking about invasion of the body snatchers and so am I. And this is one of the things that is interesting about the mirror world and is that we're, we're having these arguments about who is real and who is not, not about different interpretations of reality, but basically who has been body snatched. Um, when I, in my first draft, I did just kind of leave it there as a bit of an easy laugh, you know? Okay, so she thinks vaccinated people don't smell. Maybe she had COVID and China was, was just said, you know, it is funny, but you know, modern cities really do feel pretty soulless. And this is kind of another example of getting the facts wrong, but the feelings right, which is why these, these conspiracy, uh, these conspiracy influencers find the traction that they do because they're often articulating something adjacent to the truth 
And that's another example. I mean, when I go into cities, I, I, I mean, you could certainly make a case that people are looking at each other less or interacting with each other less. So that was a great piece of feedback from China. So big, big thanks to him for that. Cause I, that's now one of my, actually, I think, I think one of the strongest parts of the book, I haven't heard anything directly from her. I did ask to interview her. Um, and she didn't respond. She used to try to, uh, engage me in debate before this. And I think that she feels really, really beat up by what she would call like sort of liberal media. And she didn't respond to my request to an interview and she hasn't responded to the the book except to tell a New York Times fact checker that she had made some poorly worded tweets Um, because I think the fact checker was checking to make sure that she had actually tweeted these things that I quoted her saying. And that was that was her response. But other than that, I haven't received any direct response. She does things that I find unsettling, including post pictures of her new husband doing target practice and saying things that are a little unsettling about that. But no, not, a, not nothing direct. Um, I, I think there probably will be something, but not yet. But I, I have to say, I also... I think if she were to read the book, I hope that she would be pleasantly surprised that it is not as much about her as some of the reviews had made it seem. And I'm pleased that some of the reviews have noted that it is not just more pile on, more mockery, more cruelty, because I think that part of what has kind of pushed her into the arms of the Steve Bannons has been the fact that making fun of Naomi Wolf became a spectator sport on the internet. And I'm not interested in, in in contributing to that more of that. And I actually have been very aware as the book has sort of entered the world and been reviewed and talked about that this has probably been really hard for her. And um, I don't like that. I like hearing this backstory about you and China because I think it's the most compelling thing about the book. I can feel how there would be this temptation to go, whoa, what the hell happened to Naomi Wolf, this liberal feminist from the Clinton Gore era and now the the darling of Steve Bannon. But the move you make to think about doubles being a sign of what you aren't looking at in yourself, it reverberates through the rest of the book that you you use Naomi Wolf as a means to look at Naomi Klein. And it feels like it almost becomes the reason for the book to confront one's shadow self or one of the main reasons for the book. And also when in confronting your own shadow self, looking at the ways the movement that you are a part of has failed in a way that might fuel the appeal of a figure like Naomi Wolf. And the questions you ask of us, yourself included, I think feel really, really powerful. If we, in contrast to Wolf, are for a government having a significant role in protecting its citizens from infection, you ask, how much, if at all, did we push the government to keep the mask mandate in place for the immune compromised? Which is still an, a live question. How much are we pushing the government to keep a mask mandate in place for the immune compromised? Or to make filtered indoor air a right? Or perhaps most poignantly, how much did we push to share our vaccines beyond our borders? Especially I'll add, considering that at the beginning of 2022, long into the vaccination rollout, over a billion Africans hadn't even received one dose. 
what if we had refused our second or third boosters in solidarity, refusing them until they had access to their first? And I love these questions, and I feel pained by these questions. And I want to talk about our inaction in a couple of different ways. But, but first, I wanted to start with inaction in relationship to language. Roth's double's real name is Moisha Pipik, which would translate from Yiddish to Moses belly button. It's not his real name. That's the name Philip Roth gives him to try to get some kind of control over him. Okay. Um, <laughs> That's a great name. Uh, it, yeah. He, 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 he feels he, he's tired of calling him the other Roth and giving him that kind of power. So he wants to come up with a name that will make him feel superior. So he calls him Moisha Pipic, which means Moses's belly button. Yeah. So he, he calls him Moses's belly button. And you define Pipicism as making such a parody of language that it creates a sort of speechlessness in their opponents. And you yourself have talked about speaking out less during the pandemic about certain things because of a certain anticipatory fear of how the mirror world would instrumentalize it in, in horrifying ways. But you now feel like the silence or the speechlessness is worse. And I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit about that for us. You know, when I when I followed my white rabbit down the rabbit hole, I ended up getting much more interested in other people who I met down there than than, than her. I think she is an interesting figure, but probably a more consequential figure is Steve Bannon himself, who she's now published a book with, put out t-shirts with. At one point, she was on a show every single day for two weeks. Um, so it's not like she's like an occasional appearance. She's At certain points, she's been practically a co-host. And so I started listening to a lot of Steve Bannon, like a lot. And there is a scene, there is a moment in the book where my partner, Avi Lewis, walks in on me doing yoga before bed while listening to Pandemic, War Room Pandemic, which, it, which, is, uh, <laughs> which is the name of the podcast. Um, and I was, he would laugh that for months, every time he come to, came into any room I was in, I would lunge for, for, for my phone to turn off whatever weird thing I was listening to, because I just didn't want to get into it. But, you know, most of us have a per particular perception of Bannon because we only see him when he's being dragged off in handcuffs or when Media Matters clips a particularly riled up moment in one of his podcasts where he's saying something like, we're going to put their heads on, you know, heads on sticks or spikes or whatever, whatever it was. And, and so we see him as this you know, really angry kind of blowhard guy. And he is that there is that, but he contains multitudes you will find. Uh, and this is the interest. The interesting thing about, about doppelgangers is they do stand in for that. And if you become a longitudinal listener of Steve Bannon, which I don't recommend because I did it for you, I can tell you that there is another side where he is, where he really performs being this very welcoming presence for people who have been canceled or, and he uses this word, othered, which is another kind of pipicking of an important term intimately connected to fascism. So he'll say to his listeners, you know, like you need to subscribe to this or buy that because I would never other you. I would never cancel you. I would never do that to you. You know, you're always going to be welcome here. And, you know, and, and it's also a very much an activist space. I think his skill as a strategist has always been to look at the issues and the people that his opponents have neglected or left unattended and pick them up and perform agreement. And then of course, 
it's a bait and switch because then it's bashing immigrants, it's it's transphobia, and it's the goal of taking power for, as he says, a hundred years. But he he knows what issues are going to sell with the public, and he knows that in order for this to work, his opponents have to not be using those ideas. So, for you know, in, in 2016, he did this with free trade, op- opposition to free trade in many deindustrialized areas in the in the U.S., where people had voted for. Democrats again and again and again promising to renegotiate the free trade deals back to Bill Clinton, and they never did, and they just signed more of them. I don't think Donald Trump cares about free trade deals. I think Steve Bannon told him, you go there, you go to Pennsylvania, and you talk nonstop about free trade, right? Mm -hmm. That's how you're going to get those workers. And you don't need to get all of them. You need to get a slice of them. So I think he did that with rage at Big Pharma. There's so much reason to be angry at at these drug companies that have knowingly uh, spread toxic drugs, you know, in so many areas, particularly some of these same deindustrialized areas. I think one of my more chilling moments when I was uh, when I was listening to his podcast was was when I heard him cut together this audio montage of mainstream news shows like on MSNBC and CNN and just the parts that said brought to you by Pfizer, brought to you by Moderna, brought to you, and just like Anderson Cooper brought to you by Pfizer. And the thing that's chilling about it was realizing that we on the left have really stopped talking about corporate consolidation of the media. And that he sounded like me, like Noam Chomsky, like, you know, democracy now at circa, you know, 2000. And and that's the, that's the move. That's the skill. It's it, it's not that he cares about these issues, right? It's that he knows that there's traction there. There's juice there. And I think there were a lot of, there were, there are just so many issues like that. And that's why, you know, I talk about, about the reactivity with the mirror world, because it's worse than that, because then once an issue gets traction in that world, then liberals and some leftists are even less inclined to talk about it. So if they're they're against the, the vaccines, then all we have to say is roll up your sleeve and get your get vaccinated. And we're not talking about those patents that should never have been there. And we're ceding this really, really um, important political territory. Yeah. Is that what you were getting at? Yeah, no, it is very okay. much. I really like the part in the book about language and speechlessness. Um, you talk a lot about victories that the left has won on the level of language and discourse, transforming the way we talk about things, but not necessarily changing the things, or at least not directly, that are being talked about. That there's been a focus on policing both the use of language and the borders of identity. And I'd also add there's sort of a liberal sport of pointing out misspellings in the speech of right-wing people and the and hypocrisies. Um, and right after this part of the book, there's a section called Beyond Blah, 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 where you recall that Greta Thunberg's first protest was refusing to speak to anyone outside of her own family when she learned of the environmental crisis as a child. And that only when people around her committed to actions, not words, did she begin using words. And when she started speaking in front of huge audiences, you said you could tell that she was believing that her words could actually yield actions but that she has since lost that faith and she speaks less and less about climate change and more about the farce of the whole charade put on by these supposedly concerned world leaders where she says things like, 
build back better, blah, blah, blah. Green economy, blah, blah, blah. New zero by 2050, blah, blah, blah. And at the end of the Glasgow Climate Conference, they asked her what she thought about the final agreement. And she said, they even succeeded in watering down the blah, 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 which is quite an achievement. And I bring this up because this question comes up often on the show about what art does in the world. What mm-hmm. does poetry do in the world? What is it for? I like, I like Adrienne Rich's lines in her poem, Dreamwood. Poetry isn't revolution, but a way of knowing why it must come. But the question is eternally vexing for writers. And, and you go into this question of both how the left focuses on correct speech and can often be intolerant when it comes to differences on the level of speech and or thought in a way that, as you've just mentioned with your Bannon yoga, Steve Bannon at least performs a different relationship to speech than the one that I'm characterizing about the left. This question, we have a question, another question for you from another. It's not really about speechlessness, but I'm going to bring it back to speechlessness afterwards. Um, I want to, I want to say something about Greta. Yeah, please. You know, I do believe that that speech that she made at, at, at Glasgow and uh, was, was a piece of absolutely brilliant performance art and she meant it because she has not been going to any of, of, of these things that she gets invited to since then. Right. She hasn't, she didn't go to the cop in Egypt. I doubt she will go to the cop in Dubai um, coming up in November. Uh, and you know, she didn't go to Davos this year. I mean, she gets invited to all of these spaces and this, she, she gets pulled into these kind of charades where these world leaders want to have their pictures taken with her. Justin Trudeau wanted to march with her against his own government, um, you know, when there was a big climate march, but it's not that Greta's not doing anything. She has been doing direct action. And, and, you know, people think of Greta as an activist, but before the blah, blah, blah speech, she did the she did the school strikes and she still does, you know, every Friday she, she does, she, she gathers and holds, holds the sign. But I think she's been arrested three times at direct action or, or, or wrist arrest three times, you know, trying to stop oil trains and coal mining. Um, so I think she's in a process of trying to reunite words with action. I don't think she's given up on words, but I think she's given up on it. She's also published a book and it's full of words, but <laughs> I think, so. and it's a great book, the climate book, which is an anthology and you know i talked to her about that book when it was when it launched as a kind of sequel to the blah 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 speech in that she's she's giving a platform to all kinds of different people from it, you know it, it's a it's a very large anthology it includes many frontline activists from around the world many indigenous voices many scientific voices um but but you know she says it's for the movement it's not for the leaders like she's no longer speaking truth to, to power, quote unquote, she is building part of a process of, of, of building power from below. So I don't think it's about losing faith in words themselves, but it's about trying to knit back together the, the connection between the words about revolution and the revolution, yeah. which doesn't mean that it necessarily needs to be the same person, but I think there does need to be some kind of connection. And I know for me as a as a writer, like what, coming back to where we started around speechlessness, what made me feel speechless was not the pandemic or the climate crisis. It was the seeming collapse of our movements. It was, it, it was how do you go from such highs to such lows in, in such a short period? Mm. So 
yeah, that's all I wanted to say. So here's a question from another for you. Hello, Naomi, Naomi Klein, or is it Stein or Wolf? This is Judith, Judith Butler. Although my last name was changed at Ellis Island, when the nurse in his final days asked my father his name, he said, Levine. Wow, I should have been Judith Levine. Odd how names are supposed to refer to us as singular creatures, but they can get lost or muddled, translated and appropriated. Who claims to be me in social media? I do not know. I loved your book and followed every word, finding there both sustenance and reorientation. Thank you. My question for you is why, only toward the end of this book, did you start to consider your mother's insight that you were being confused with Wolf, whose views could now hardly be more different than your own, because you were both Jewish women? Was there not both anti-Semitism and misogyny among those who thought perhaps you were substitutable for one another? After all, if there is a single figure for the loud Jewish woman making public her views, what matter the name? Mm-hmm. Challenging. <laughs> oh, well, that was that was really wonderful to hear uh, Judith's voice, and I feel really really blessed by by their support for this for this project. It is the final uh, substantive chapter before the conclusion, uh, the unshakable ethnic double, which begins uh, during a, a blackout at my where, where where we lost power in the middle of a climate-fueled storm. And I went over to my parents' house to siphon power for my laptop. And I explained what I was working on to my mom. And she got nervous because she felt, well, why, like, why draw attention to it? Because for her, it was just obvious that it was about anti-Semitism. It was about, you know, I th- her word was they see you both as a type. Um, and the type is, you know, as Judith said, you know, a certain kind of opinionated Jewish woman, another friend of mine said they see you both as Japs, um, which I thought was interesting and challenging. Yeah, I, th- I think it's the end of the book because it's the most important part. <laughs> it's And it's the longest chapter. It's the most substantive chapter. If it's a journey where we look where we finally look at ourselves, it has to be, it has to be at the end. I wondered if her, if there was a subtext to her wondering why it came towards the end, if it was related to speechlessness, because I think of, for instance, the many, what I would call illegitimate ways anti-Semitism is used by certain sectors of both the Jewish institutional world and the non-Jewish world like I'm thinking of, I, I remember watching this short video recently of David Graeber, the Jewish anthropologist, talking about how, you know, there were thousands of articles about Corbyn being anti-Semitic that were all insinuating things. And meanwhile, Boris Johnson wrote under his own name and his own book directly anti-Semitic things in it, and no one's writing about it at all. Like the real anti-Semitism mm-hmm. isn't being spoken, but the accusation of anti-Semitism used to silence or derail. And then just the the um, really problematic definitions of anti-Semitism. And then I feel like when I when all that's out there, I feel myself 
more reluctant to speak out about anti-Semitism that I feel is real anti-Semitism. And I do feel like there's plenty of that. And so I wondered if part of Judah's subtext was, did it come late because of like a need to push through to say it? Because I think a lot of the speechlessness becomes comes also from a parody of meaningful terms in language, right? So if all these words get co-opted and then flashed back to us from the mirror world in these really stupid ways, it's hard to use them anymore. Yeah, and both anti-Semitism, real anti-Semitism, acts of anti-Semitism, and the fight against anti-Semitism or the the claim to be fighting anti-Semitism have been used as a weapon to break apart coalitions again and again and again. You know, and I get into some of this in that, you know, in the, in that chapter, this is a book in part about conspiracy culture and one of the oldest and most persistent, if not the oldest and most persistent conspiracy theories has to do with the Jews. Um, there are two major pieces of it. One is the kind of the, the blood libel, right? This idea that that you, they, that's the ancient one, um, that Jews are you know, kidnapping Christian children and doing rituals with their blood. And then there is the more recent one, which runs through the Rothschilds to George Soros, Protocols of the Elders of Zion, that there's, that there's this cabal of, of Jews pulling the strings for everything from the French Revolution to 9-11 it recurs and recurs and recurs. And it was used in, in, in Russia in the first Russian re- attempted failed Russian revolution in 1905, when the Bund, the labor Bund, was this central part of a multi-ethnic working class coalition challenging the czar. And the way that coalition was broken apart was by, on the one hand, offering some minor reforms, um, and on the other, unleashing the hounds of anti-Semitism um, that you know turns into a, a bloodbath of pogroms. Eventually, there is a successful Russian revolution, as we know, and there, you know, there, 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 there's huge anti-Semitism unleashed. And partly that is because there are so many Jews involved in the revolution, right? And so one of the things I, I, I look at in the book is, you know, why are there so many uh, Jewish Marxists um, of various of various kinds of you know various various sectarian kinds of socialism and Marxism, and I I make an argument that of course it, it would be reductive to say it's the main reason, but that part of part of the history of Marxism is a history of Jews banging their heads against the brick wall of history saying it's not the Jews who are the, the the fault of your of your problems it's capitalism it is a system that is designed to to produce oppression and to extract your labor and to consolidate wealth and that system is called capitalism it is not a conspiracy but if, if nobody has ever explained to you how capitalism works it's understandable that when somebody says and this comes back to your earlier question about what is the appeal you know, we don't teach about what capitalism, how it works in schools. We tell people it's about sunshine and Big Macs and freedom. And so when 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 that system fails them tangibly, as it, as it is failing so many people on this planet, then 
there's a there's an there is an intellectual vacuum that is created. And if somebody comes along and says it's the Jews or it's, you know, QAnon is is a remix, right, of the ancient blood libel and the newer, you know, the more modern Jewish banker cabal, because it's about this idea of the, this global cabal of elites, mo- many of whom are Jewish, not all of them, but they are apparently trafficking in children so that they can get their adrenochrome, which is just like a like a little bit of a twist on the old ancient blood libel. So that is an explanation if nobody has explained to you how capitalism actually works, which is why if you go back in the history of the Bund and the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks, you know, and the Trotskyists and all of these Jewish revolutionaries, they took popular education so seriously, you know, that is why like we have the stereotype of the, you know, the, 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 the newspaper seller, the pamphleteer, right? They're trying to explain to working people what the system is instead of, um, getting blamed, perhaps some of them being worried about getting blamed themselves. They all had skin in the game. You know, this is what I'm arguing. You know, Marx, Marx's father was a convert, but the reason Marx's father converted from Judaism uh, to Protestantism was, I think it was Protestant, Protestantism was because it was illegal to be a lawyer if you were Jewish. So he had to, he was forced to convert and he actually fought that law. And, you know, Marx was descended from rabbis on both sides. And eventually his daughter, as China Mieville pointed out, he's like, you have to put in that she said, I'm a Jewess. So that was another China Mieville nudge. Um, But, but I think, as you say, David, like, I'm acutely aware of how the fight against anti-Semitism, not anti-Semitism itself, but the fight against anti-Semitism now is used to weaponize, used as a weapon to break apart left-wing movements used against BLM, right? Used against against Corbyn, you know, and, and, and Corbyn made mistakes. I, I, he did, but I don't think he's an anti-Semite. And I think that it was incredibly opportunistic the, the way it was used and also outrageously hypocritical for the reasons that you, that you mentioned, because it isn't the Labour Party that's anti-Semitic. It's British society that is anti-Semitic, which is why this confusion, frankly, happens about a hundred times more in the UK than it does in the US. It is just, it seems to me a more anti-Semitic society and, and the Labour Party is not is not outside of that society. I don't think it's particularly anti-Semitic. To, to return to these journeys of certain figures like Naomi Wolf, from the democratic power elite to the Bannon-led conspiracy-fueled far-right, or in the more memoiristic part of Doppelganger about raising your neuroatypical son, you looked at the questions raised by the career of, of Hans Asperger, who was a progressive physician before the Nazis came to power and then became fully enmeshed in Nazi eugenics, where the notion of high-functioning autism coined by him, was meant to distinguish those who had skills that could plug into and further the aims of the cogs of fascism and Nazism, and all the others without those skills would be exterminated. Or my wife's longest friend, who now sees my wife as selfish and privileged for getting vaccinated and is okay with her unvaccinated actions, killing people who don't have strong immune systems. You talk about how eugenics was and is as popular on the left and on the right. On this show, we've occasionally touched on the long history of white supremacy as an intersection with ecological movements, um, ecofascism, but also in other ways. And the intersections, for instance, of 
prominent early Sierra Club board members were often eugenicists who were for forced sterilization. And they had a membership policy up until the 60s, which kept the club largely white. Or Audubon himself being a slaver who bought and sold people to fund his work on birds. Or the explicit racism and xenophobia of Edward Abbey. Or the way Hitler himself used ecological language as part of his project to protect the native lands of Germany and the people who naturally sprout from it versus the people who are polluting it. But because of your son's neurodivergency, you focus more on the world of natural medicine and doppelganger. Often it's viewed as a left-wing counterculture, natural medicine, And you find many people in this world who have been seduced by the far right, something that is perhaps most poignantly brought home when you're canvassing door-to-door on behalf of your husband's candidacy for parliament. All of this you explore under the notion of what you call diagonalism. So I was hoping you could just spend a moment with diagonalism, why why it's a useful framing, and how, how you saw this manifest itself in either finding help for your son or helping your husband's uh, political campaign door to door. So diagonalism is a, it's a term that I think is a useful alternative to horseshoe theory, um, which often gets invoked to describe a kind of a left-right alliance. And we have seen some migration from, from, from left to right, but I think it's inaccurate to describe it as far left and far right coming together because I think for the reasons we we were just discussing around um, the history of the radical left being being actually a history of people who are intensely focused on system thinking and on understanding how power and capital work. The far left to me is where the socialists and the Marxists hang out. And that is not who, for the most part, is crossing over to the Steve Bannon world. It is kind of disaffected liberals like my own doppelganger, who never was really a leftist. I mean, she was very clear that her critique, um, her feminist critique was not a Marxist critique. She she once said that very clearly, that it was about, it was about taking out what she saw as as unfair obstacles and barriers to women achieving equality in the workplace. It was very lean in for its time, sort of Sheryl Sandberg type uh, lean in feminism. And I think for her, like the house of liberalism collapsed. And part of the reason why it collapsed is is that she, she became for a while critical of Israeli policies and was really experienced an extreme kind of excommunication um, which I I have experienced, but I was never in it in the way that she was in it because I was raised by leftists who were critical of Zionism. So, you know, when the house collapse collapses, you have some choices about where you're going to go. And you know, she could have she could have gone to the far left, but she didn't. She went to she went over to the far right. Um, but the other the other thing that you see are people a, a kind of a real overrepresentation of folks from the wellness the wellness world. You know, I'm, the, the, there was a big uh, protest in Canada of of uh, led by truckers, the trucker convoy that took over Ottawa um, for three weeks, and 
you know, there was open air yoga, there was, uh, I, there was a lot of support from somebody who wrote uh, the Oh, She Glows vegan cookbook. There were a lot of glowing people from the glowing mama world supporting this. So I, you know, I'm trying to understand what this is about. And so the term, you know, in my book, I, t- I, I say, it's not the far left. It's the, it's the far out. It's the far out left that is, that is crossing over. Not all of it. Um, but in a, in a way that is say overrepresented to the far right. Uh, William Callison and Quince Libidian, who are both uh, scholars of European politics, particularly German politics, wrote an essay for the Boston Review early in the pandemic in which they they lay out this framework for calling these crossovers diagonalism instead of the horseshoe theory. And it's building on a German word that the that that the anti-lockdown protesters use, uh, which is Kerdunken, which means outside the box or diagonal thinking. So they basically translated that as 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 diagonalist. And so, you know, they're identifying a few trends. A lot of folks are small business owners um, from the wellness world, from the alternative health world. They've owned yoga studios, they're chiropractors, they were affected a lot by lockdowns. They also see themselves as being in competition with traditional medicine. A lot of them were selling supplements and seminars as an alternative to getting vaccinated. So they talk about how it, like the elements are an extreme rejection of traditional democratic institutions, combining elements of spiritual holism with libertarianism, and uh, diagonalists tend to believe that all power is conspiracy. That's a quote. And then the other thing is that although it contains elements of the kind of green wellness left, it reliably arcs right. And I would say that that's true even of a figure like RFK Jr., who is running for the Democratic Party, but with a lot of support from key Republicans like Roger Stone and Steve Bannon. Um, And so, you know, I think that I think it's worth trying to figure out why why wellness is so overrepresented in this diagonalist alliance, because it's not simply I think that 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 they owned studios that were hit hard by by um by lockdowns because they're not the only ones you know small theater owners didn't for the most part join these alliances so so what was it about this particular kind of wellness that fits so well and so easily and so comfortably with these far right eugenicist movements and i think that it's fair to say that the underlying tenets of corporate wellness culture already rhymed with the paranoid individualism of far-right conspiracies. Um, That neoliberal wellness culture's message that individuals must take charge of our own bodies as our primary sites of influence, like we need to optimize, we need to perfect, um, we need to strengthen our, our, our bodies and our immune systems, fine. But the idea that that is what is that is basically our our life raft in the in the roiling capitalist seas is just perfecting the self, and I think that that fit very nicely with far right notions of natural hierarchy and genetic superiority and disposable people, and that's how you end up with and I I tell the story in the book of of us going door knocking for for Avi's electoral campaign, and Avi went to a door that he thought 
looked like it was probably going to be easy to get them to vote NDP, which is our, you know, our leftish party, which he was trying to push further, further to the left. He said he could smell the sandalwood from the from the sidewalk. Uh, and out came someone, you know, in full yoga gear who looked like somebody I could have taken an Ashtanga class from. And he and and the only question she had for him was, what is your position on vaccine passports? And he, you know, said the position of the party, which was that he was in favor of them. And she said, I have a strong immune system. I don't need to get vaccinated. And he raised, what about people who don't have as strong an immune system as you? And she said, I think those people should die. Yeah. And it was just absolutely chilling because it's not the thing you expect to hear when you go to a door with a whole bunch of like, Ganesh statues on the windowsill and no. sandalwood wafting to the sidewalk. But, you know, if we look at what Modi is doing in India, maybe we should find, maybe we should do a little more research about Hindu <sighs> nationalism and yeah. <laughs> it's actually plenty compatible with supremacist thought. Yeah. Well, I want to spend some of the time we have left with the ways the language you use to frame your politics feels connected to the way I envision the show when I look across your books and public talks, a theme emerges for me. The title of your 2015 talk for the Othering and Belonging Institute is called Imagining a Future Without Sacrifice Zones. And your wonderful Edward Said Memorial Lecture in London is called Let Them Drown, The Violence of Othering in a Warming World. And I'll just say this talk is amazing, which begins from a place of how on the surface giving a climate talk as a memorial lecture for Saeed seems like an odd topic given his contempt for environmentalism as the indulgence of spoiled tree huggers who lack a proper cause. But you go on to complicate this deeply by looking at green colonialism in the context of Israel and Palestine, which really I think shows us what he was responding to. Um, but you also talk about sacrifice zones in Doppelganger, not just the individual examples of anti-vaxxers who talk of body autonomy and strong immune systems or eco-fascists who might think widespread famine and disease and poor continents might be a natural thing um, to help with population control. But you take this to the level of government policy. Who have we deemed sacrificial to save everyone else? And your focus on a future without sacrifice zones makes me think of Pass Between the Covers guests, Christina Sharp's notion of distributive risk. She says in her latest book, Ordinary Notes, care is complicated, gendered, misused, it is often mobilized to enact violence, not assuage it, yet I cannot surrender it. I want acts and accounts of care as shared and distributed risk, as mass refusals of the unbearable life, as total rejections of the dead future. The concept that blew me away in your book, which is going to surely shape my thoughts going forward around the show is the notion of the second body, something the novelist Daisy Hildyard speaks of, that the human condition is one of having two bodies, that the one we are aware of, and then the shadow self that supports and props up 
the actions of the other body, the known body, by traveling through these denied parallel worlds on our own behalf and extracting resources and goods that make the life of the first body possible. And she says, you are stuck in your body right here, but in a technical way you could be said to be in India and Iraq. You are in the sky causing storms, and you are in the sea herding whales towards the beach. You probably don't feel your body in those places. It is as if you have two distinct bodies. You have an individual body in which you exist, eat, sleep, and go about your day-to-day life. You also have a second body which has an impact on foreign countries and on whales, a body which is not so solid as the other one, but much larger. I had never thought of it this way with this language, but I feel like going forward, this is going to sort of reverberate into many future conversations on the show. But before I sort of bring this notion of the second body in relationship to between the covers, talk to us about taking this notion of individual second bodies and then talking in a larger systemic way about shadow lands and sacrificial zones. I also really, really love that passage. And thank you for for reading that part of Christina's book, which I also find so powerful. And I love the refusal to surrender care despite all of these profound injustices around it um, because we just can't afford to. And this is why I said before that the book is not just about doppelganging. It really is about doubling. That's the through line. And the mirror world image around there being this this place that people who kind of fall down the rabbit hole, as we constantly are saying, um, go to, right? The world that, that they live in. It's so easy and so comfortable to pretend that they are the only ones who are refusing to look at reality, that they that they are just in a world of their own making and they're just they're just fantasists, right? And that is such a comforting message. You know, I'm very conscious of the fact that like this book, don't tell anyone is a bait and switch for liberals <laughs> who, <laughs> uh, or, or as an FT review just said, it's a Trojan horse. Um, it's like, yes, it is. You thought it was just going to make you feel smug about those other people. And he's like, why am I suddenly talking about settler colonialism in red Vienna? And the reason is that quote unquote, they, the, the, the people in the mirror world, the people who have fallen down the, the rabbit hole are not the only ones who cannot bear to look at the the full breadth and sorrow and pain of, of 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 what it means to be alive, and Hildred's um, image of like the second body, the body that is maybe less corporeal but larger, and also ours. I think is something that we all experienced in the early days of the the pandemic, where we suddenly felt bigger, right? Like the, the space that we had to think about our bodies, our, our bodies being in was much, much more enmeshed because that's the nature of an airborne virus, right? I have to think I'm, I'm out, I'm out on this walk. I'm breathing this air. Who else breathed this air? Wow. Like our bodies are all big. Like they're so big that they're still there after we leave, after we leave the room, you know, who, who packed this box? Could they call in sick? Who's caring for my parent? How many other institutions do they have to work in to, to to piece together a paycheck that they can live on and send remittances back home? 
Um, so capitalism is incredibly good, especially in its quote unquote frictionless phase of hiding the reality of enmeshments and selling a fantasy of frictionlessness mm. so that we do not see and do not think about the shadowlands that support our lives. And I think that the reason why we had an acceleration of derangement in the COVID period is precisely because the studiously unseen came to be seen, albeit far too briefly, and it was such a profound challenge of the central narrative of colonial racist capitalism, which is you make yourself, everything good that happens to you is because by dint of only your own labor and anything bad that happens to anyone else is just because they aren't as good as you um, because of their own failures. And because public health and epidemiology sees us as a mass of humans. You know, we are we are not being treated as individual bodies. We are being treated as a web of bodies. That was just too much of a mindfuck for, you know, neoliberal capitalism because mm -hmm. people believed what Margaret Thatcher told them that there there's no such thing as society, that all we are, you know, are are men, individual men and women and families. And they believed it because that's the air we breathe. That's all that we've been told. We shouldn't be surprised that they believed it. What was surprising was the idea that we actually were in a web and we were expected to act that way. And we should take some heart and some solace that quite a lot of us welcomed that enmeshment for a while, even if we then turned away. But, you know, the, the point is that we all have ways to look away, not only the Bannons and the Wolfs um, and the, the, the conspiracy culture as distraction machine, it's very hard to sustain the reality of those the shadow lands that support our ways of life. And especially during the lockdowns, right? Because that was like, you the class divisions were so sharp. The people who were able to, and the class and race divisions were so sharp between the people who, you know, as, as Christina Sharp says, risk was so unevenly distributed. Care was so unevenly distributed. And the, the consciousness, the inability to hide from the fact that we were just being served, we who were able to stay home by these by these many categories and classes of people who were on the front lines of risks, who were catching who who, who were getting COVID, who were dying from COVID because they were serving us, because they were caring for our parents. That is very, very hard hold, hard to hold. And then comes the racial justice reckonings. And it's like, no, you don't have to just reckon with the present. You also have to reckon with the past. And then come the climate disasters. And guess what? You also have to reckon with the future, which is banging down your doors. How do we hold that? How do we hold that? And like, maybe we should have a little bit more compassion for the fact that a lot of people are finding ways to look away. And some of them involve something we would recognize as disappearing into fantasy world. But what do you call going to see the Barbie movie for the sixth time and saying it's radical feminism? Right. Like that's fantasy too. Um, so I think that's what I mean by, by, you know, eventually we had to get to the Shadowlands and that's why I think the hardest reckonings are at the end of the book. Well, I want to take this notion of the second body into writing and also this question of the ways, the notion of there is no society influences the way people write. 
and sort of as part of connecting the second body to the show and to writing and capitalism and the way capitalism and sacrifice zones shape the way we portray characters. I want to read something from a recent conversation with poet Roger Reeves from his essay collection, Dark Days, where through much of this collection, he's contemplating the questions that come up for him in raising his five-year-old black daughter in the United States, what to teach her and what to shield her from. And one of the things he feels it's important to impart is that victim and victimizer roles are not stable relationships, that even for black people in America, something as simple as buying clothes for his daughter is buying from a maquiladora factories where elsewhere people are being exploited, sometimes in unimaginable ways. And he quotes Achille Mbembe from his book Critique of Black Reason, who in writing about plantation life says, The blacks on the plantation were, furthermore, diverse. They were hunters of maroons and fugitives, executioners and executioners' assistants, skilled slaves, informants, domestics, cooks, emancipated slaves who were still subjugated, concubines, field workers, assigned to cutting cane, workers in factories, machine operators, masters, companions, and occasionally soldiers. Their positions were far from stable. Circumstances could change and one position could become another. Today's victim could tomorrow become an executioner in the service of the master. It was not uncommon for a slave, once freed, to become a slave owner and hunter of fugitive slaves. In my opinion, if there's any people in the United States that least need to be thinking about how they're victimizers, it would be black Americans and indigenous people. But I realized from reading you and from reading Roger that this is another way of framing the second body, which everyone has uh, to some degree or another. And this framing prevents victimhood from being seen and taken as virtuous, I think, and makes the self and one's community porous to other sometimes countervailing or contradictory narratives from other people. And that's a big part of what attracts me to Roger Reeves or other guests like Monica Yoon, who simultaneously is examining anti-Asian racism, but also anti-Black racism within the Korean-American community, or Darren Negrifa and Padraig Otuma, who speak about colonized Irish people and culture, but also about Irish people abroad being complicit in colonization, or Sharif Shanahan, where he looked at fraught intersections of Arabness and Blackness at the many centuries-long taboo of doing scholarship on the effect of the trans-Saharan slave trade on Black Africans, which is just now being broken with great care by Black, Arab, and Muslim scholars. And again, Roger Reeves himself thinking through the ways the African-American community, which has found the acquisition of land as one effective way to secure a base of security and power, could and should contend with the fact that the land itself is stolen land. And the question of whether our stories or our poems are creating sacrificial zones is something I think of a lot in the art I'm attracted to, poet Claire Schwartz, when she was on the show, the culture editor of Jewish Currents. And I think 
Jewish currents as a whole being a place of Jewish identity that looks at the dangers of mapping one story in a way that refuses to contend with the story of another that sort of dreams itself across an entire other culture in a way to exile it into a shadow land and sacrifice zone. And this brings me in my very long meditation to the steam engine, something that you talk about in one of these talks about othering that you gave, where you point to the steam engine and the way its invention allowed people to think that they could decouple themselves from the earth. Mm -hmm. That before the steam engine, you might have to build something by a waterfall, for example, to get power by water, for instance. You had to bend to the land and what it provided, and you had to listen to it. Your own agenda was only one agenda, and it was porous to the otherness of the planet. But the steam engine produces or the steam engine promised the allure that you're the boss. You can now create energy whenever you want, wherever you are, for however long you want, and have this one-way, non-reciprocal relationship to nature. And what's interesting about that to me is Ursula Le Guin also focuses on the steam engine and makes, I think, an intriguing connection between industrialization and capital and the way we've changed the way we tell stories. She said, quote, until the 18th century in Europe, imaginative fiction was fiction. Realism in fiction is a recent literary invention, not much older than the steam engine and probably related to it. And I think of how in many fantastical stories, humans are dwarfed by the landscape and are only one type of being among a wealth of other beings. In contrast, you think of contemporary stories set in Brooklyn apartments where even the houseplants or the, the cats might not be worthy of attention or description, but also how the realist novel eventually is seen as the prime vehicle to express the individual consciousness, a narrative vehicle for the individual. Um, you say in this book that if we have a double, it is a sign that there's something about ourselves we refuse to see. And near the end, you say we need to be hard on structures but soft on people, that change requires collaboration and coalition, a softening of the borders of self and identity groups, a porousness that I think we see in pre-steam engine narratives, but also I think we see people pushing against that those narratives now, pushing other voices, other beings into um, the way we do narratives and softening the borders of the self also seems to be about softening the border of the novel. But I wondered if you could talk about the softening of, of the borders around identity and around groups of people in, in your work. I do feel that you know, so many of the doppelganger stories are these intensely ego obsessed journeys and I relate, you know, I do think that in, when I, when I first thought about, about doing this project, which I thought was just going to be an essay, it was, you know, as I, I, you know, confess in the book, like, like it was going to be like a battle of the Naomi's and I was going to be the last Naomi standing, you know, <laughs> I was going to, I was going to have a duel with my, with a uh, duel with my duel. Um, and I think on this, Freud was right that, that doppelgangers stand in for, the, the multiplicities of the self that we're aware of, that the person we are 
is not the only possible self that we could have been. We could have made different choices and we could be a different self and we could become and will become a different self. And that's hard to hold, especially if you are holding very tightly onto yourself and your reputation and your, and, and your name, um, you know, in all caps in Philip Roth's novel, your name, your name, all you care about is your fucking name. (laughs) 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 You know, the challenge that fake Roth makes to real Roth is like, what about the collective project? And, and, you know, he's saying, what about the Jews? Um, I wouldn't say not, not just the Jews. What about the other kinds of collective projects? Because this is the thing about the unbearability of this moment is here we are doing everything we can to perfect ourselves and to fortress ourselves. And a lot of that involves creating doubles of ourselves. Like when we create a brand, when um, when we try to turn our children into mini me's of ourselves that are little trophies that we can polish. And I didn't answer your question about, about my son, but you know, this is what having a atypical child has taught me is that that's not what kids are for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's a really hard thing for a lot of parents to deal with, which is why I think they go down a lot of these rabbit holes about blaming vaccines because they can't just except their kids, whoever they are. And I think parent, a lot of parents of trans kids do the same things. Parents of queer kids do the same thing. And we try to double ourselves because it makes us immortal. I mean, if our kids are just extensions of ourselves, then that means we never die, right? And that's the ultimate form of self-instability. But if we come back to Daisy Hilliard's second body and the reckonings of this moment, the overlaying reckonings of past, present, and future, None of these are things we can do on on our own. We can't face any of it as an individual. And yet capitalism is constantly trying to tell us that we can, that we that it's just a, you know, take a DEI workshop, confront your personal white supremacy, um, you know, buy ethical clothing, um, become a vegan. Fine, do all of it. But don't delude yourself that any of it is the is the actual collective work that we have to do. So we can only do, we can only face these unbearable realities. We can only bear them if we're bearing them together. And we will only bear them together if we loosen our grips on these various kinds of propri- proprietary selfhoods, some of which are individual, some of which are a little larger, the family, the child, and some of them are the identity group. Um, mm-hmm. And this is why, you know, this is my most Jewish book, because I, you know, this is something I've wrestled with my whole writing life. And I mean that literally, like the very first piece I published was my bat mitzvah speech (laughs) Um, when I was 12. It was published in the synagogue bulletin. (laughs) And it was about Jews being racist. Mm -hmm. It was an attempt to reconcile the kind of universalist values that I had grown up with with the values that I was seeing in my Jewish day school and the fact that there was a lot of racism against black people and also um, against Moroccan Jews to the extent that there was a school because I grew up in Montreal. So there are a lot of French speaking Moroccan Jews. There was a school down the block, a Jewish school where kids from my school would throw rocks at them through the fence. And, and so my, 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 my bat mitzvah speech, which as I said, my first piece of published writing was kind of a harangue (laughs) of like, how is this possible? Uh, And, you know, I thought we were, I thought we said never again, Mm -hmm. but there was a difference. There are different ways of understanding the phrase never again. And I want to overly idealize my, my leftist Jewish upbringing, but 
I did hear a version of never again, which was never again to anyone, that we need to understand the methodologies of othering and stand up whenever it's happening to anyone. And at my Jewish day school, it was never again to the Jews, never again because of Israel, right? because now we've got the guns. It was a very different story. And I think Olafemi Taiwu in Elite Capture talks about how trauma is not ennobling. Um, it doesn't make you a better person, but it can be a bridge, right? It can be a bridge because it is not, it is, it is, it, 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 it is a bridge to a profoundly human experience that a great many people on this planet and uh, ha- have experienced. And, and it can also be a wall of division. Yeah. It, it can also be a way not to enter into coalition, a way to become, to grip very, very tightly on the collective self. And so when I think about the moment that we're in and how we might earn some hope, even when we don't feel it, you know, it's it, it's only going to happen if we can look away at the various reflective surfaces and towards each other and 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 create. You know, you 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 mentioned Christina Sharp, who, who I know from Toronto, and 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 love her writing. I interviewed her some years ago and it had a real effect on me when you know she 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 was talking about the kinds of coalition that we need. And I, I don't have the exact quote, but it was very clear that it's not that we collapse into a mushy unity. <laughs> um, we are all, we're still going to be different. We still have different experiences. We still have different experiences of risks. We still have, carry different debts, are owed different things. Um, if we can hold on to that difference and still reach towards each other, we can earn coalitions. As we're coming to an end, I, th- I think of my conversation with Adrian Marie Brown also, where she deeply links science fiction and social justice and talks about how all organizing begins as an imaginative act. How more than anything, we're in an imagination battle of who can tell the story that speaks deeply to where we are and where we need to be or where we could dream to go. I think exemplified again by Le Guin's quote, we live in capitalism, its power seems inescapable, but then so did the divine right of kings. There are many surprises at the end of your book that I'm going to preserve so people can discover them on their own. But you return to this question of action versus words, where you say, most tasks are easier said than done, but coming together across seemingly intractable borders may be easier done than said. If we stay in the realm of words, we will always find reasons to fracture or step out. And camaraderie is in the doing, the recognition of shared interest in the doing. Or quoting Kianga Yamada-Taylor, struggles help us to see each other, movements change the people in them. And the Palestinian poet Naomi Shihab Nye, there's a way not to be broken that takes brokenness to find it. So I just wanted to say I really love the way you, when you discover that speaking about the shock doctrine for years didn't prepare you to actually navigate it when it affected you directly in the world, that you now as a consequence write differently going inward in order to go outward, but also the uncertainty and the vulnerability alongside the vision and the apprehensions and pauses alongside the paths forward. 
perhaps that's what Angela Davis is referring to in her blurb, that justice movements may find new meaning in a place they least expect to in injury and in vulnerability. And I wondered if the writing of this book in a new way has produced any new unexpected desires for you as a writer or as an activist going forward post-Doppelganger? I think it has, including a desire for more collective creative processes. Like I would be really interested in trying to not just be the writer alone in the room. I'm drawn to a process of collective writing for plays. I would love to, I would love to write with other people. That's, that's the main thing that I, that I feel. I don't know if I'm going to go back to writing more straight ahead nonfiction. Um, you know, I teach and do research in a university and that might be, that might, that might fill that part of me. Uh, and then for my own writing, I might, I might keep trying to play a little bit and see, see what happens, but I'm interested in, in not, not doing it all by myself. Like most things uh, I, I don't want to do by myself. <laughs> like Mariam Kaba said, everything worth, worth doing is done with other people. <laughs> Well, thank you, Naomi, for being on the show with me for two and a half hours today. It was a joy. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to think with you and that incredible web of voices you brought in. We've been talking today to Naomi Klein about her latest book, Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find out more about Naomi Klein at naomikline.org. For the bonus audio archive, Naomi contributes a reading from Operation Shylock of a letter written by Fake Roth, otherwise known as Moisha Pippick, to the real Roth. This joins supplemental readings by so many of our past guests, long-form interviews with translators, some craft talks, and more. The bonus audio is only one possible benefit of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests, and every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation. Of things I discovered while preparing for the conversation, things referenced during it, and places to explore once you're done listening. Additionally, there are a variety of other potential gifts and rewards, including the Tin House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year months before they're available to the general public, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. Find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Nichelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro, their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, 
can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.